Now it's time to talk about Arizona. Arizona is a red state. Trump carried Arizona 49 to 45 percent. It's currently nine points more Republican than the national average. But change is coming to Arizona. Republican Senator Jeff Flake is not running for re-election. Maybe you remember he criticized Trump quite a bit during the past year, although he voted with him nearly all the time. Right now, it looks like that open Senate seat will be won by a Democrat, Kristen Sinema. The polling experts say the odds of her winning are about two out of three. Today, we're especially interested in the House, where big changes also seem to be underway in Arizona. In Tucson and the desert southeast of there lies the 2nd Congressional District. Last time around, the Republican candidate there got 57%. That was Martha McSally. But this year, she decided to run for the Senate, and she's the one who seems likely to lose to Kristen Sinema. So there's an open seat, and all the odds makers and experts say the Democrat is very likely to win it. Her name is Ann Kirkpatrick. For comment and analysis, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He's been reporting from Arizona for The Nation. Sasha, welcome back. Thank you, John. Will you open your report for The Nation with a count of what it was like when you went to a meeting of Republican precinct captains in a place called Cochise County? Tell us about that. Yeah, so the the district is a geographically huge district. It's um, almost as big as the state of New Jersey. But outside of Tucson, and the district um, is in the eastern half of Tucson, outside of Tucson, it's very remote. And it's a few very small towns and a lot of desert and a lot of ranching communities. So I went to um, the precinct captain's meeting in one of the small towns. And it was maybe 40 or 50 people, and they were in the back room of a local bar. And the conversation was about what the political odds were of winning and how they were going to win and so on and so forth, and what the political issues were that they cared about. And as you'd expect, the issues they cared about were the border, illegal immigration, drugs, all the things that Trump and the administration have been pushing, all the fear buttons about out-of-control crime, out-of-control immigration, and so on. Um, And what struck me about that meeting was how predictable it was that it was full of elderly people. It was racially, virtually homogenous. It was almost exclusively white. And it was almost exclusively driven by a sense of fear. And then you went to a meeting of Democratic precinct captains in Tucson. Tell us how that compared to the Republican precinct captains. Well, these weren't precinct captains. It was just a big political gathering actually sponsored by Raul Grijalva, who is a very progressive congressman from the neighboring district. And he represents much of Tucson, and he's been a sort of powerhouse in progressive democratic politics for several decades now. And he co-chairs the Progressive Caucus in Washington, D.C. And Grijalva's event was just boisterous. It was young. It was multi-ethnic. It was full of energy, and it was also full of a sense of change. And you, you can, these things can sometimes be overblown. Sometimes a very sort of small, 
low-key meeting like the Republican one hides the fact that there's a lot of dynamism under the surface. And sometimes a big boisterous meeting like the one in Tucson hides the fact there's you know, not so much beneath the surface. But in this instance, I think what we're seeing is that a lot of political energy in Arizona is flowing to the Democrats. And so you mentioned in the opening that this is a state that you know, has long been a Republican stronghold. And that's true. But it's also a state that in the last 10 years or so has increasingly become a purple state, a battleground state. And that's largely because the demographics are changing. Um, in the same way as California in the 1990s, it had Prop 187, it had this very anti-immigrant moment. And then afterwards, it had this tremendous political empowerment of traditionally disenfranchised communities. And I think the same thing's going on in Arizona. It's had this vast anti-immigration moment. It's got some of the most strict anti-immigration rules in the country. It tolerated Joe Arpaio's excesses for years and years. But now there's a critical number of people in Arizona who are coming of age refusing to accept that that is their norm. And it's changing the politics of the state in really interesting ways. Let's talk for a minute about the Democratic candidate there in Tucson and southeast of Tucson who is likely to win, Anne Kirkpatrick. What are her politics? Well, what was interesting in the primaries, both parties had multiple candidates. And both parties had candidates from the political edges who for a while looked like they were going to surge. And in the end, what happened was, in the primaries, it was the centrist candidates or the more centrist candidates who prevailed. So in the Democrats' case, it's a woman called Anne Kirkpatrick. She grew up, I believe, on a native reservation. She has been a congresswoman in the past for a northern district in Arizona, and she's lived in and out of Tucson her whole life. So she's come back to the Tucson area now. She's campaigning for this open seat. The Republicans ended up in a contest between a fairly centrist businesswoman, um, the head of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in Tucson, and a very extremist constitutional conservative, I believe he termed himself. And in that primary, it was Leah Marquez-Peterson, the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce head, who emerged triumphant. So you have this election between a fairly centrist Democrat and a Republican who embraces Donald Trump's policies but is less crazy and less extreme than it could have been. <laughs> and so I think what, one of the things that's happening is you've got a lot of voters in the more rural parts of this district who are looking at this congressional race, and they're thinking, all right, we've got two fairly moderate political figures, but we really don't like what Donald Trump's doing. And as we all know, a large part of this election is a referendum on Donald Trump. And I think that we're seeing that in Congressional District 2 in Arizona, that one of the reasons there's room to flip this district is that there's a moderate centrist Democrat who is really able to take advantage of voter discomfort at what's going on in the Trump administration. One of the biggest events in Arizona politics of the last year was the surprising, to many of us at least, mobilization of the teachers around a campaign they called Red for Ed, uh, I understand Red for Ed is not a communist campaign. <laughs> Red for Ed is a group of ordinary teachers who are fed up with low wages and 
bad working conditions. And we, we've seen very similar movements in Kentucky, in Oklahoma, in West Virginia, in a series of states around the country where unions are very weak and where working conditions for teachers have been pretty bad, that in the last year or two, there have been teacher walkouts and mass movements to better fund education. And one of the really interesting things in those states is they've acquired tremendous momentum because they built popular support. And so in Arizona, which is very anti-union, where teachers are paid very low wages, you've got teachers basically walking the precincts, talking with people, knocking on doors, organizing, doing all the things that union organizers and labor workers did 100 years ago. And they're engaging the community in their fight. And this has become one of the big issues in the election campaign because you've got a Republican Party in Arizona that's so locked into the anti-tax mantra that it's just absolutely impossible with Republicans controlling state government for anything to happen to better fund the education system. And so, you know, we're talking in this interview about what's happening in the federal elections in Arizona. But the other really interesting thing to look at is what's going to happen in state races there, because you've got a tremendous sense that Red for Ed on the ground is impacting state politics in Arizona. And it could do so in really interesting ways in November. Let's talk about Bisbee. That's an isolated town in Arizona, site of a former gigantic copper mine, which was legendary in labor history circles for a strike in 1917. After Phelps Dodge won that strike, they famously rounded up 1,300 strikers, loaded them onto cattle cars, and dumped them out 200 miles east in the New Mexico desert. You went to Bisbee. I know the Phelps Dodge mine is closed now. What's it like there today politically? You know, it's a fascinating place. I went to Bisbee because Cachise County has two really iconic towns um, amidst this huge desert terrain, and one of them is Tombstone, the... um, legendary center of the OK Corral, the shootout of the OK Corral. And the other one is Bisbee. And as you said, Bisbee has this phenomenal labor history. It's this beautiful town just a few miles from the Mexico border. And it's got now a defunct, huge copper mine. And so you go to Bisbee, and on the southern edge of town, there's this copper mine, which is about 900 feet deep, I believe. It's absolutely enormous. Looks like a crater from a meteor. And the town itself, when the mining jobs left in the 1970s and 80s, the town itself sort of shrank, and then it reinvented itself, and it reinvented itself as a sort of art colony. So when you go there, it's got this very intact old downtown with these old historic buildings, and it's got these lovely inns and hotels and restaurants. And then it's got probably dozens of art galleries and boutiques and jewelry stores, and it's just this fascinating place culturally. And one of the sort of interesting things about Bisbee is it's a fascinating place politically. So it's surrounded by these very conservative red communities, these ranching towns, these old mining towns and so on. Um, There's a big military fort nearby, Fort Huachaca, and all of those are reliably Republican. And then you've got Bisbee, which has about 5,000 people and is sort of a Berkeley of rural Arizona. It's, mm. its politics are very left. It's it adopted a gay rights ordinance very early on. Um, it's very environmental. Um, if anything, it's you know 
to the left, quite a bit to the left of the Democratic Party. And I met the mayor there, and the mayor there called himself a recovering Republican. And he uh. said, look, I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me. And then he talked about the rise of the Tea Party and the rise of a sort of very intolerant politics that he was very uncomfortable with. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting story because in the calculations for how you get a majority in Cadiz County, you've got the big epicenter of Tucson, but then you've got all these small communities, a few thousand here, a few thousand there, and you have to be able to create the numbers. And so if you can get three or 4,000 votes in Bisbee in the surrounding area, that's a huge part of the tally for any Democrat who's hoping to win in CD2 in Arizona. Any closing thoughts about what's coming in Arizona? It seems like they're going to flip both a Senate seat and at least one House seat. What what makes for Democratic success in Arizona this year? You know, Arizona is demographically changing. It's not changing as fast as California changed, but it's heading in that same direction. It's becoming a polyglot society, and the electorate is becoming polyglot. You know, one of the lessons that the Republicans will probably have to learn in the coming years is that as states like Arizona become more diverse, the kind of ethno-nationalist politics that Trump has been pushing the Republican Party towards, it might win in the short term, but in the long term, it's very hard to imagine how the Republicans create electoral majorities that deliberately exclude and demean and diminish large parts of the electorate. Sasha Abramsky reported from Arizona for The Nation. You can read his report at thenation.com. Thank you, Sasha. Always great to have you on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.